This week on 501c3 BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth, we get a twofer. We're going to hear two different pieces of 501c3 BS that we've all heard many times, and they're connected because they revolve around the idea of pay and equity. One piece of BS we often hear from college students considering a career in community benefit is, I really want to help make the world a better place, but I don't want to be poor, and there's no money in nonprofits. And that's just bullshit. The opposite BS is what we hear from small community benefit organizations, or CBOs for short. That's what we call them here on this podcast. We don't use the N-word nonprofits on this show unless we're making fun of people or talking about the actual government tax status. Refer to Season 1, Episode 1 for more on this. Anyway, a small CBO will say, We can't afford to pay staff. We need to grow. And we can't grow without staff. Today, we're going to cover both and interview an authority on this, David Tallon, the Division Chief of the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages Program at the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, you may say to yourself, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, that doesn't sound interesting. But you'd be wrong, because I'm going to blow your mind and blow these myths right out of the water. Welcome to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! As new generations chair from my Rotary Club, I was tasked with helping set up several youth clubs at the high school, college, and young professional levels. This put me in touch with hundreds of young adults thinking about their career path. Having spent my whole career working in the social sector, I would ask them if they ever thought of a career in leadership for a community benefit organization. The answer would always be something along the lines of, uh, yeah, but I realize there's no money working in nonprofits and I want to have a good life for me and my family. They've had it drilled into their heads by their parents and their friends that they can't make money working in the social sector. This is the same answer you used to get when you mentioned a career in the arts. Parents would say, well, that's a nice avocation, but not a real vocation. You need to have a real job or at least real skills to fall back on. Okay, true confessions, that was maybe just my father. But I'm sure it was echoed in households across the country. So what did I do? I got a job in the arts and in the social sector. Two things that were supposed to keep me broke. I feel like I've never worked a day in my life, and I've certainly never been broke. I've never had to wait tables. Life is good. The truth of the matter is the arts is the second largest employment field in the state of California where I live, and it's the largest export from the United States. With internet jobs being the wave of the future, jobs in arts and design to create content for new media is the future of employment in America. So the whole arts thing was total bullshit. And, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the social sector accounts for 11.4 million jobs, which is 10% of all private sector employment. These people are not starving. And according to our guest today and his study at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in the aggregate, workers at quote-unquote nonprofit businesses earn a paid premium compared to their for-profit counterparts. The study goes on to show that there is evidence supporting slightly lower wages in some social sector jobs and other sector jobs paying better than the for-profit corporate world. But overall, they found no real disparity. The truth is that pay and benefits difference between our sector and the rest of America is minimal, if any. What is not discussed much, however, is the added benefits we have in our sector that have nothing to do with pay, but everything to do with happiness. 
We go to bed every night knowing that we're on a mission to make the world a better place. And that, my friends, that is priceless. Because we work with people who are also on this mission with us, we have the closeness and camaraderie with many of our coworkers that you don't expect to find in an office, but more likely in a battlefield, on a space shuttle, or in an operating room. People often truly become partners in work like a tight-knit team. Because our sector is charged with working in difficult and highly charged situations, such as mental illness, homelessness, and institutionalized populations, we tend to be well-educated and well-trained as a sector with enormous skill sets. We also wear many hats and juggle many balls in the air at one time. It would not be unusual to find veterans of our sector with advanced degrees and certificates in special educational niches, counseling, and leadership. Social sector's best and brightest are amazing at working with a diversity of people, from high-end social elite funders to those working their way off of the bottom rungs of the social ladder. When I look back at my life and the reasons I got into this line of work, it was because of really amazing role models. And these were, and are, truly amazing people who appeared as heroes to me, quietly saving the world by saving their own little piece of it. And I wanted to be one of them. We, as a sector, need to make certain that we keep these high standards, expect training and education from our ranks, and talk about the great pay and benefits that exist in our sector for new recruits. We have to stop acting like people have to swear a vow of poverty to work in our field. We also must not pull people into the field with little or no training and act like we're just happy to have anyone who's interested. If we have high standards for ourselves, take pride in our work and station in life, others will aspire to do this work too. When I talk to high school and college students and I ask them, hey, would you ever consider working in the social sector management jobs? They almost always say no. Then I would ask them, well, what's more important to you, making money or being happy at work? And this question always catches them off guard. For many, it's never occurred to them that they might need to make a choice. Most will say, well, well, both. Wait, wait, why can't we have both? And I tell them that having both is not the norm at most people's jobs. There are some people who have neither, and there are a few people who have both in equal amounts. Then I would ask them, if you have to pick one of which you want more, would it be a comfortable paycheck with a happy work environment or a heftier paycheck and a less fulfilling work? Now they get deep in thought, and I throw in, would it make a difference if you knew your job was helping people in the community? Now most will say, I'd rather know I'm doing good in the community as long as I can get a good paycheck. Now I have brought them to this line of work. Then why wouldn't you consider a social sector job where you can make a good salary and do great work for the community? You should at least consider it. And with that, they do. David Talon is the division chief of the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages program at the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. He received his bachelor and master's degrees in economics from Bowling Green State University. He joined the Bureau in 1993 and was responsible for seasonally adjusted state and area estimates. In 2000, he came to his present job, where he continues to work on the production and development of this important data. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Zude. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm so happy to have you because uh, you're doing this really important research where you're comparing the for-profit and the nonprofit sector. And before we start, I should let you know that on this podcast, we try to avoid the word nonprofit because it's not necessarily the best way to refer to ourselves. We usually use the word community benefit or social sector. Um, but, but because you're working for the Bureau of Labor Statistics and because you're working with the tax status of nonprofit, I, I, I'm going to uh, say it's okay to use it on this program because we're actually talking about the tax status, which is fine. So um, uh, 
you know, just wanted to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing. Sure. Well, uh, first, thank you for this opportunity to, to reach out to you and your listeners. Um, so basically, this topic kind of started uh, because BLS over the years has had frequent information requests from data users. Uh, in addition, our state partners um, who we collaborate with also like demand and in some cases produce their own nonprofit studies and uh, using a quarterly census of employment and wage data, which is what this research data is built on. And I should also mention that uh, prior researchers who have used uh, BLS data, primarily from the Johns Hopkins uh, University as well as the Urban Institute, have demonstrated some usefulness in terms of uh, nonprofit data. So that's really the genesis of this. It's um, not only demand from uh, you know the public in terms of this data, but uh, there's been some very useful uh, research done by uh, some universities and uh, other institutes. Now, my understanding is that there was a study done in 2014 that was updated in 2016. Is it something that is, is updated on a regular basis? Has it been going on for much longer than that, or did it just start in 2014? Uh, it really just started in 2014. Um, basically... Um, we've uh, we've got limited resources, so um, when we produced this data in 2014, we wanted to uh, reach out to data users, and there's actually a comment section on the BLS website where users can comment in terms of the helpfulness and usefulness of this data. Um, but as far as like the, the future, it's pretty much based on uh, the demand from the public and then available resources uh, in the future. Now, if people wanted to look up the study for themselves on Google, what would they put in the search criteria? What is the name of the report? Well, uh, well, there, there's uh, there's several reports. I'll, I'll just mention there's a NLR article by Eric Friesenhan. You could just Google nonprofits in America, new research data on employment wages and establishments. You could also probably just Google BLS and nonprofits in America, and we've actually got a web page uh, where we've got all the data hosted there. So you can download the data sets uh, on that website or refer to the monthly labor review article. And I think I found it by just Googling uh, nonprofit wage gap or wage disparity and it came up because that is that is the myth. The myth is that there's this misconception that uh, many people think that if you get a, a social sector job, a nonprofit job, that you are making a vow of poverty and <laughs> that you're never you're never going to uh, be able to feed your family that you're just uh, you know mother teresa having to work with the poor of calcutta no matter what you're doing in our sector and that's just not the case and you've proved that with this study so um can you just give us a little bit about what the data showed i mean i i basically what i got out of it and what i've kind of said before you got on the air is that in aggregate um that for-profit jobs and nonprofit jobs are, are pretty much equal, all things considered. There are a few jobs that are a little less, a few jobs that are a little more. Is, is that a fair uh, uh, assumption of, of the data, or is there, you know, mine into it a little bit and tell us what, what you found? Sure. That's a great question, Sue. So if we look at our data, and this, just, this is just selected industries for 2012, this is looking at the quarterly census of employment and wage data, which is essentially... Uh, if you think about censuses, this is a census for all of the uh, businesses that are covered by unemployment insurance uh, 
in in the U.S. So that that's basically 98% of all businesses. So this is very highly accurate data with low revisions, and we've got data on employment and wages. So if you look at that data just for the private sector, and again, the year here we're talking about is 2012, the annual data for the private sector is about 49,000. And if you look at the nonprofit sector, it's about, I'll I'll say, 46, uh, actually 47,000. However, if you look at select uh, industries, sectors, you'll find that there's uh, some nonprofit, uh, that sector actually is higher than the, the total private. So, for example, if you look at healthcare and social assistance, uh, on average, their wages uh, for the annual uh, annual wage data is about 47,000 versus 45,000 for the U.S. Educational sort services is 48,000 versus 44,000. Uh, other services is 33,000 for the nonprofit versus 30,000. Um, <clears throat> I'll say arts and entertainment uh, is actually high, higher in the private sector, 33 in the private sector versus nonprofit, 28. So, um, so if you look at it by industry, uh, certainly you can see select industries are higher. I'll just throw out one caveat in terms of the industry data where we're not actually comparing occupational staffing patterns. So we just have the aggregate kind of wage totals by the individual business establishment. So within those businesses, obviously they're staffing patterns. In fact, that's something that we haven't looked at. But if you look at the aggregate data, uh, that's what the, the industry data shows. So, you know, you mentioned the arts and yeah, I, I worked a long time in the arts and I know that in for-profit arts, you're talking about major galleries that are selling multi-million dollar works and, um, you know, sometimes have very large paychecks. And so, you know, that probably skews the data a little bit in the arts when you're talking about for-profit versus a non-profit sector of arts organizations um, because, because of the fact that galleries are selling work. I think, in, and you mentioned in Medicare, it's higher in the um, nonprofit hospitals and, and medical associations. And I think there was a thesis that I read from your report that said that it was kind of theorized that maybe that's the case because um, those, you know, let's say a Catholic or Jewish hospital doesn't necessarily have to make a profit. So they're turning more money back to the, the employees. Would, would that be a correct assumption? Um, we, we actually don't know that. So, um, we, we basically just tabulate the data, uh, and we kind of let, in this case, the data speak for itself. So it would be hard for us to draw any conclusions, at least like that, from, from this particular study. I thought I saw a theory. Maybe the theory was on somebody else using the data, but uh, I thought I'd read that. Uh, anyways, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of good reasons why, you know, things might be slightly higher in the for-profit sector that kind of throws the data off a little bit, like I was saying about in the arts. But basically what you found is not that far apart. You, you know, the even where, even where it was higher in the for-profit sector, it really wasn't that far apart. Right, right. Well, I am so happy that you were able to dispel this myth for us <laughs> because it is one of the persistent myths of our sector that uh, that – you know, you can't make money in, and I, it's funny because I deal with college students all the time and, um, you know, I'll try to convince them that this is a great uh, career path and they'll always say, oh, no, no, but I need to make sure I have enough money to feed my family. <laughs> so, so you're, you're doing a great job and a great service with this data to kind of um, dispel these myths. And I'm so glad you started doing this in 2014. Sure. 
it's it's our pleasure. Um, another fun fact when you look at our data is we started in 2007, and just looking at the, as many folks know, December 2007 was the start of the, the recession, and we know the recession was, was one of the deepest in, in modern times. If we compare the private sector employment to the nonprofit sector, we actually see that the nonprofit sector had a steady increase in employment um, from 2007 through 2012. So that's another uh, interesting fact about the nonprofit sector uh, that your readers might be interested in. So, so one could say that working in our sector is a bit more recession-proof than working in the um, private sector because of the fact that when there is a, a problem in this country, it's the nonprofits that get mobilized. Right. Um, it, you know, as an economist, I'll say center is <laughs> You know, not all recessions are not not all recessions are created equal. But um, just looking at the most recent recession, we we see that the the trend is the nonprofit sector is much more stable relative to the private sector, again, with the caveat that that data just applies from 2007 through 2012. Well, I know looking at the data during the recession, uh, you know, things things that are considered luxury items, even though I would argue they're not, things like the arts and humanities um, tend to suffer, but social service tends to rise in a recession. Um so, you know, I would see like arts programs would get cut in a recession, even though you could make the, the case that, that that's the time when they're most needed. But the uh, social service programs would grow during a recession. So I think that pretty much happens anytime there's an economic downturn, because let's face it, more people move from the middle class to the lower class, and there's more needs for social services. Let's see, the, the other uh, highlight I'll mention, I, I kind of mentioned how the employment for nonprofit organizations steadily increased from 2007 through 2012, which was the time period of the most recent recession. Uh, the, your listeners might also uh, uh, be, be uh, made aware that the nonprofit sector accounts for about 10% of private sector employment or about 11 and a half million employees. Uh, that's based on 2012 data. And within the nonprofit sector, healthcare and social assistance is the largest component of the, the nonprofit sector, accounting for about 68% of employment in the nonprofit uh, sector in 2012. Now, you, you continued the study all the way through 2016. And did you notice that after the recession was over, that there was a, a, any change in the disparity between for-profit and non-profit? I mean, was, you know, can you, will the recession account for um, the, the higher employment during, during the recession? So after the recession, did the employment still stay high in the non-profit sector? Uh, actually, our, our, data point, our, our last data point is through 2012, but um, if we just look at the data trend, uh, the non-profit employment increased from, I'll just say, 10.5 million in 2007 to call it, uh, you know, 11 and a half million in 2012. So there was a steady increase in the trend. So there's no, nobody can, can make the argument of saying, well, that, that was fine because the recession was on. That's why more people were being employed and there was more money in the nonprofit sector. But that won't hold up after the recession. You're seeing a trend that is holding up. Right. When, when the recession ended in June of 2009, the, the trend in the nonprofit sector employment steadily increased. 
Is there anything else in the data that you'd like to uh, highlight for us? Um, if we look at the, the geographic distribution of the share of nonprofit employment by state, this is looking at 2012 data, we find that uh, a lot of the nonprofit organizations are concentrated in the Northeast uh, portion of the, of the U.S. Um, do, you, do you find that there are more nonprofit organizations concentrated in, in uh, the West Coast and East Coast, kind of the more well, I hate to say, I hate to make this political, but the more democratic regions of the country are the more urban regions of the country? First, we're a political uh, organization, so we, we don't do any breakdowns by that. But the data that we do have is uh, looking at the, the state data. So if we look at the states, um, you can see there's a heavy concentration in the Northeast. Uh, if we look at the highest concentration, kind of the top three areas, uh, Washington, D.C., about 27% of its share of employment is falls into the nonprofit sector, followed by New York and Rhode Island with about 18%. The lowest concentration is uh, in Nevada with about 2.7%, followed by Texas and Alabama with about 5% each. What about the West Coast? Does the West Coast not also have a large concentration? Uh, well, looking at a map, it looks like Oregon and Alaska have a, a percent between 10 and 15 percent, California and Washington State about 5 to 10 percent. Uh, I should also say Hawaii also has uh, a share between 10 and 15 percent. So you couldn't make the case that is political then because those are not all um, heavily uh, urban states. So uh, we, we don't get into politics. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just I was just kind of wondering in my own mind if, if that was a thing. But it doesn't seem to be, and it seems like – I mean, I can understand why Washington would have such a high concentration because a lot of national um, nonprofit organizations' headquarters would be there. So that would kind of make sense then that New York and Washington, D.C. would be kind of a center of, of a lot of national offices. But then I would think San Francisco and L.A. would as well. Um, I, I, we, we, yeah, I know. we simply don't have the data to – to answer those questions. Yeah, and I, and I understand it's not your job to interpret the data. It's just your job to put out the data, which is great that you're doing that and let other people interpret it. But um, so that is interesting, though, that, that there is that concentration um, and that the concentration, like when you talk about Hawaii and Alaska, that that the concentration is not necessarily with urban centers because you, you would expect that in urban centers you would have a higher concentration of organizations for, you know, people dealing with social issues. So, um uh, you know, social service issues. So it's kind of interesting that the data is not necessarily aligned that way. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. Is there any plans to continue this study? Uh, is it something that you plan on doing on a regular basis every couple of years? Or, or how, how is this going to move forward? Uh, right now, we're releasing this data on a research basis. So, um, you know, based on the public's reception of this and available resources, we may do a follow-up uh, release on this. Well, I hope you do. I mean, it is a large sector of the economy that is often misunderstood even by people within our own sector. So hence the podcast that I'm doing. <laughs> so I hope you do continue it. I think it's incredibly valuable. Sure. Well, we, we appreciate your interest. Often I will have a small volunteer run CBO call me as a consultant and ask me if I would help them grow. The first thing they would say is, we can't afford to pay staff. It's a big catch-22. It takes staff to grow, and you can't get staff until you grow enough to afford them. 
It's like getting your first credit card. It takes credit to get credit. In my first CEO position, I went through three interviews to get the position, leading a very small community benefit organization. They tell me over the phone I'm hired and I can start after the holidays. I come into work and they tell me, okay, here's the situation. We have $90,000 in the bank. We lost our site and we have no program. How much do you want? Oh, $65,000 a year? Well, I hope you can raise it and still have enough to pay the assistant who makes $35,000 a year. This is not an ideal situation to walk into. I did raise it. In 15 months, I built up six sites, new programs, and a $650,000 annual budget. But that is not normal. Most small CBOs wouldn't have the balls to hire someone and then tell them that they need to raise their own salary right off the bat. And that is not an ideal way to work with new staff. However, there are some ways in which organizations can leverage their strengths to get paid staff so they can grow. For example, they can leverage their investors. How do most CBOs grow? They do it through a capital campaign. A capital campaign is any campaign that works to raise a large sum of money for a purpose that will grow the organization. It could be a new building, an expansion, repairs to an old building, creation of an endowment, or equipment needed to grow an important program. And one other thing a capital campaign can be used for is to grow staff. Let's say, for example, that our little organization is a house museum with an annual revenue stream of about $100,000. A group of people saved it from demolition 20 years ago, and this historic house was built by the town founder. The group is aged and is still giving tours, but they can't do what they used to do, and they've been very unsuccessful at getting new people to take over for them. They get about $50,000 from the city to help keep up the property. They raise about $35,000 in revenue from tours and an annual fundraiser, which they do at Pioneer Days Festival. The other $15,000 comes from a few local investors and board dues. We realize that if we can have a guaranteed investment of $150,000 for three years straight, we could afford an experienced social sector leader and an assistant to get programs started and develop fundraising. We put together a capital campaign to raise $450,000. That's the $150,000 for the new staff salaries for three years. We make a list of people in our area who could give us the money and a list of grants that help in capacity building. One board member with grants experience works on the grants. All board members divide up the list and start asking for help with a brochure they put together specifying what we need and what they get in return for helping. If one company puts up $100,000 a year for three years, they can have naming rights over the main room, porch, parking lot, or anything else they can think of to name that will make a difference. A volunteer who is great with writing puts together a press release and works to get articles on the campaign in the local papers. Another volunteer who is internet savvy gets the message out on social media and puts together a great new website featuring the campaign. A plan is put together for the timeline of the campaign. A big push will happen at the annual fundraising event. By the end of the fiscal year, Commitments should be made and the hiring process begins. Another way to get staff for a small organization with little money would be to hire a retiree from the community who cares about the organization and has some expertise in growing a business. If they understand business, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will understand the social sector. Money should be budgeted to send this new CEO to training for social sector CEOs. Many such courses exist and can be found throughout community foundations and CBO collaboratives. If you can find someone like this, you can arrange a sliding scale of payment as the organization grows. Maybe you make the initial salary based on 30% of the previous year's budget. If it is a $100,000 a year annual budget, you agree to pay them part-time a salary of $30,000 a year. Remember, they are retired, presumably with a fixed income already. If they reach your goals of growing the organization by 10%, they will get a bonus of $1,000. If they're successful growing the organization by $200,000, then you'll pay them $40,000. 
If they can grow to $500,000, you'll pay them $50,000 and get them an assistant. My rule of thumb is that a CEO for an organization between a half a million and a million dollars should be paid no more than 10% of the annual budget. Another idea? Okay, like the last method, this idea takes advantage of someone who doesn't need a large income. If you can get a graduate student to take over a CEO, presumably they are still in school, living at home or on student loans or a scholarship, their bills are low. They have the incentive to take the job to prove their ability, learn, and start at the top. If they can take the same deal as outlined with the retiree, they can do all three. The disadvantage to doing this with the younger person is that there is a chance that they will leave for a higher paying job as soon as they show their worth and build a track record on their resume. However, if they are committed to the mission and the community, that may be more important to them than ladder climbing. The advantage to a younger person is generally, but not always, someone who is tech savvy and can bring in a younger demographic. This can lead to longer sustainability of the organization. These methods have advantages and disadvantages and none are foolproof. However, all are better than having no staff at all. And that leads us to a terrible possibility. The possibility that the board doesn't really want staff at all, or even growth for that matter. It is easy for people to fear change and just want the comfort of what they've always done. They also get the bonus of being able to play the martyr in the scenario for many years. They can die as the devoted saint of that old broken down house museum. Is that what you want? Think about it. Well, I hope we've done a good job of dispelling these two myths for you. There is pay in the social sector, and it is possible for a small organization to get good quality paid staff. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Join us at the Summer School for Nonprofits for one amazing week every August. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian coro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.